0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Want to hear what pure joy sounds like? Ask Gabrielle McAuliffe about her pregnancy. Do you remember where you were when you found out you were pregnant for the first time and what your reaction was? You betcha. I
2: think <laughs> my husband and I had just been on a pretty epic honeymoon. So we got home from our big eight-week South American trip. We pretty much started trying pretty much straight away. So I think I was very blessed and fell pregnant. Would have been literally on our first attempt, if you know.
1: And uh, what was your husband's reaction?
2: He was super, super excited. We were both just super excited. We were on a bit of a high from our honeymoon and this was just like, just completed that joy.
1: And the joy kept coming. Pregnancy for Gabrielle was a breeze. I must admit,
2: I was one of these annoying women who (laughs) who literally did glow throughout their pregnancy, so no complications or anything to report during the pregnancy.
1: And the birth?
2: It was literally one puff on the gas, and then he was out. He
1: was her darling boy, David. But this is when things started to take a bit of a turn for Gabrielle and her husband, which isn't to be unexpected.
2: Babies are really hard work. As soon as David came out, I, used to, I joke about it now, but it was like he came out crying and did not stop. <laughs> so I remember literally that first night at home, he just had a shocker. He wouldn't settle, we were up all night. And literally my husband goes to me the next morning, what have we done? <laughs> because it was, it was pretty rough. So he was just so hungry and it felt like he was never satisfied and never could settle himself back, you know, back to sleep. And, oh, I just felt like I was feeding him constantly.
1: In the coming weeks, things would go from bad to worse for Gabrielle, way worse, like far beyond the struggles new parents face.
2: I started not trusting my husband. I started to believe that I was being kept under surveillance, that there was a camera behind the clock in
1: my living room. Gabrielle was losing her grasp on reality. She was experiencing something very few mothers go through, but when they do, it can be devastating.
0: For me, it was losing my wife as, as I knew it. I would ask what's my name, do you love me? And she would say nothing. She wouldn't she would just look at me and like she might whisper, I know what your name is, but it was like shit, things are, are really going wrong.
1: You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today when giving birth leads to psychosis.
2: I guess the first signs of something more sinister going on was when I started to actually shut down, I call it.
1: Around four weeks after giving birth, Gabrielle was feeling intermittently emotional and anxious. She was also barely sleeping, all things that felt mostly within the range of normal for new parents. But now things were escalating.
2: I kind of stopped talking. That's a bit odd because I'm quite outgoing and quite social so I think I just started to
0: completely withdraw so one morning it was just you just wasn't really functional and wasn't responding wasn't drinking water but yeah just tried to talk to her and, and you got nothing back you got a blank face back
1: That's Gabrielle's husband, Andrew. He didn't know it yet, but Gabrielle was starting to become paranoid and develop bizarre delusions. She was terrified.
2: I actually started to believe that there was literally a court case and I literally believed that my darling husband, Andrew, and I were being investigated for planning to plot and murder my son. So I started seeing police cars everywhere, hearing sirens, seeing the flashing lights, Basically, I was starting to get engulfed in this story. Well, it was my, well, it was my reality at the time that we were being investigated. Um, And at this stage, obviously, it it wasn't the case and I couldn't communicate this to anyone at the time. This was just what I was living inside my own
0: head. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know that what psychosis was she was asking weird questions and and she actually was was writing things down and, and there was stuff like yeah I don't trust Andrew and I want Andrew to go to work that was the last thing on my mind
2: at my worst, I couldn't even dress myself. My darling mum, who flew back from Sydney to help care for me at home, had to help dress me after the shower because my thoughts were that muddled and confused. So one minute I'd be living this terrifying reality and the next minute I was just a shell of myself.
0: That feeling of of not knowing what, what's going on, the feeling of, for me, it was losing my wife as, as I knew it. The scary thing was as I didn't know that whether she was coming back.
1: By this point, Gabrielle was also struggling to care for their son. I just didn't want to be near my baby. I
2: think I felt like, oh my god, I don't whether it was a feeling of overwhelm, I don't know what to do, or um, I don't even know what it was, but it was a disconnect.
1: Luckily, a friend who was a doctor saw Gabrielle and Andrew during this period and recognised that things weren't right. He urged them to get help. A CAT team, that's a mental health crisis assessment and treatment team, was dispatched to their home in Melbourne they
2: probably weren't in any special attire but I think my brain they came in the trench coats and and it was like they were coming to take me away so I was like I didn't trust them I barely said much to them they could see well they they kind of said oh you're smiling you know are you, are you happy are you okay and I don't think I was able to really you know kind of communicate what it was I was thinking or feeling like I hadn't had thoughts of self-harm or suicide at that stage but I think I think I was just feeling terrified numb and I thought they would literally just take my baby away and obviously that was the furthest thing that I wanted at that stage.
1: Gabrielle was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. It's an extremely rare illness affecting around one in 1,000 women who have a baby. Postpartum depression by comparison affects one in six.
3: Well, I mean, it is really an emergency in terms of both the baby's immediate capacity to receive appropriate care from their mum, but also for the evolving attachment, which is, you know, the relationship that develops between a baby and their primary caregiver that sort of sets the scene for all our relationships later in life.
1: Dr Rebecca Hill is a psychiatrist and the medical unit head for a perinatal and infant mental health service in Adelaide.
3: So we do hope in each case, you know, that there's early detection and mum and baby both get to have the right kind of care immediately because, of course, with a psychosis, the mum may develop ideas about the baby that could endanger the baby's life or just with her general confusion and disorganisation, she may become harmful to the baby through neglect or, you know, not being able to take care of them appropriately.
1: Dr. Hill says postpartum psychosis typically develops within days of giving birth, but the risk remains highest during the first six weeks postpartum. But here's a fact that really surprised me. The perinatal period, that's the time between becoming pregnant and six weeks postpartum, is actually when women are at the highest overall risk of developing a psychiatric condition.
3: We don't completely know why, but it seems like there's a high number of factors sort of coinciding at that time. So in particular, obviously, there are massive shifts and changes in endocrine systems. So the different hormones involved in reproduction and they go through quite massive changes in the immediate postnatal period. So there's something about childbirth that seems to be an exquisitely sensitive trigger for illness in some women.
1: And for many women, postpartum psychosis is their very first experience of mental illness. They have no prior history. It can make the condition all the more bewildering and scary, as was the case for Gabrielle. For others, certain risk factors can play a role.
3: So it does seem to probably be related to a genetic susceptibility. There are some families where it's seen to run in the family, so there's some, that's some evidence towards it. And... Well certainly any woman who's had one episode of postpartum psychosis is at quite high risk of having it again. If they've only ever had depression, anxiety, which is, you know, so common in our community, then they're certainly not considered to be at increased risk. It's those women with bipolar disorder, a prior episode of postpartum psychosis or family history of either of those things who would be considered at risk.
1: And how is it treated?
3: first line of treatment is medication, and so the standard antipsychotic treatments that are used for psychosis in other settings, whether schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it shows a high rate of response and recovery. Sometimes we need to add a mood stabiliser, and lithium has shown really high effectiveness for this disorder. And in some cases, electroconvulsive therapy can be rapid and life-saving relief.
1: And so once they have these treatments, are these women cured?
3: Well, certainly the good news about it is they've got a really excellent prognosis for making a good recovery. Now, it's certainly not 100%, but very high rates of complete recovery. And in general, on average, it takes about six weeks to get most of that recovery happening.
1: This was more or less how things unfolded for Gabrielle. She was prescribed antipsychotic medication, and after a few weeks trying to get the dosing right, she started to recover.
2: By the time Davy was three months old, I started to feel like a bit of myself again. So by that I mean I was able to leave the house and start slowly starting to re-engage in basic kind of functioning.
1: By the time her boy was six months old, Gabrielle had fully recovered. And while most women diagnosed with postpartum psychosis will end up needing treatment in hospital... Gabrielle was able to remain at home.
2: Because I wasn't reporting any signs or symptoms around harm to myself or to my baby, they were happy to, because my mum was there, to care for me around the clock. They agreed to that as long as they checked in daily.
1: She credits that for helping her maintain her early attachment to her baby.
2: I literally remember my beautiful mum just encouraged me to be involved as much as I could. Just hold him, feed him, look into his eyes. So even though it felt like I was disconnected, I think because I had spent time with him, he'd heard my voice, he'd been in my arms, um, I think that was so crucial for later on when I was feeling a bit like myself again and could actually feel those
1: feelings as well. And with the help of therapy, Gabrielle and Andrew started to process what happened to them and move on.
0: There was the opportunity to go to sessions for carers of people who have mental illnesses. And that, for me, put a bit of science to what was happening that was really beneficial.
1: You're listening to All In The Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, what happens when women experience postpartum psychosis? For Gabrielle, it was her very first brush with mental illness. Not so for Katie. She'd been diagnosed with a panic disorder in her late teens and developed severe depression during her second pregnancy. And while the main features of Gabrielle's psychosis were paranoia and delusional thinking, Katie's psychosis was a little different. About six weeks after her daughter was born, she heard something or someone that terrified her. So, I remember very
4: clearly when I first heard the voice. He sounded like Gollum off Lord of the Rings. And I was tucking my daughter into her bassinet. She just had a feed. And I burped her and I changed her. And I heard this really horrendous voice telling me to harm her, basically. So, it was like I was in a nightmare because. I knew that was the wrong thing to do and I knew that I was never going to act on whatever the the voice was telling me to do. So it was very distressing.
1: And so did you just hear it that one time initially or was it sort of continuous right away? It was
4: sort of really random when he would talk to me. So sometimes I'd be doing something and he'd just tell me to go and, you know, to hurt her or do something to myself or... It was just sort of sporadic throughout the day. Did you tell your partner when you first started hearing the voice? I did. And I think, you know, we both just really lacked education around this area and we didn't really know what to do. So I remember telling him that I was hearing this voice and he basically said to me, you need to tell that voice to go away, which I think is quite common for their loved ones to tell someone who is hearing voices, but unfortunately it's not that simple. So we were both just really entering into territory that we'd never
1: experienced before. And so what did you think was going on with you as you heard these voices?
4: Well, I didn't really understand, to be honest. And I just thought that it was my fault and that I was a terrible, terrible mum. And I had so much self-stigma, I didn't seek out the treatment that I needed. And I thought that my health professionals would take my children away from me And I didn't want that to happen, so I didn't seek the treatment when I needed to, basically.
1: Katie spent 12 months living with her psychosis before finally seeking help. As my daughter got older, the voices sort of changed
4: more from being centred around her to more around me and harming myself, or they would just say really derogatory comments to me. You know, I'm a waste of space that nobody... Nobody needs me. Nobody wants me.
1: And so at that 12-month point, what finally prompted you to go and, and see your GP? So I was really
4: struggling and it was affecting my kids. You know, I wanted to sleep all the time. I was finding it really hard to get out of bed. I thought this is not okay anymore because it's affecting the way that the kids are being raised. So I felt a responsibility to them to do something about it.
1: Katie was eventually also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, a condition she's lived with now for the last 10 years. But the thing that helped Katie survive during the 12 months before she started treatment was a hobby.
4: So I would just absolutely bury myself in my garden and I would use that as a distraction. It made me feel like I had something to do throughout the day that was constructive.
1: Katie planted a cottage garden and grew irises in a rainbow of colours. There were also roses, a cherry tree and a veggie patch to tend to.
4: So I found it very therapeutic, actually, to like be digging in the soil and to be planting things or pruning things back.
1: In early 2015, a year and a half after Gabrielle had her first baby, she and her husband, Andrew, started planning their second child. By this time, they'd moved back to New South Wales to be closer to family, and Gabrielle was feeling confident things would be different this time around. That's despite the fact that women who experience postpartum psychosis have a 50% chance of having it again with a subsequent birth.
2: We were definitely both more cautious going into having another baby and I think I just decided we would we would be prepared, right? So I did do a lot of research and planning and linked up with a lot of supports prior. So I just, I think I was
1: always been a glass-half-full type of girl. Andrew's recollection of this time is slightly different. He says he didn't fully understand that they faced a 50% chance of recurrence.
0: I think it was the misunderstanding if I knew that... There was a 50% chance that it was going to happen again. I I probably wouldn't have had a second baby. Joshua wouldn't be here. Um, So it's probably really great that I didn't know.
1: Their second boy, Joshua, was born just before the end of 2015. This time, Gabrielle's psychologists helped her get a private room so she could have as restful an environment as possible. And that first night, she slept well. I was like, okay, yep, I'm getting more sleep.
2: This is going to be okay. And again, once more, the first four weeks (laughs) were okay.
1: The first sign something was amiss came in week five. Gabrielle was helping out at the creche at her church, and all of a sudden, everything seemed just too much.
2: I remember my senses were heightened, if that makes sense. I remember, you know, everything was really bright and, like, the crying was intensified. I think I felt this overwhelm, you know? Everything was a bit closing in on me.
0: One of the first signs, actually, I remember her sister being there and she got up from a a daytime nap and maybe was a bit confused, but I think they was watching something on TV and she asked her sister, are they talking about me?
1: One day, on a coffee date with a friend, Gabrielle began hallucinating. The flowers began wilting, the furniture was rotting around her. Everything was death and decay and everything was grey.
2: And I couldn't communicate what was kind of... I was feeling or thinking to her, and I just felt this overwhelming sense of dread and despair.
1: Things came to a head one Saturday night when Gabrielle heard voices outside their bedroom, loud and aggressive. Whether they were real people, perhaps leaving the pub nearby, or imagined, she's not sure. Either way, they scared her deeply.
2: I just remember waking up and instantly... Feeling this super dread, something bad was going to happen and I wasn't safe. So I literally just remember waking Andrew up and just saying to him, I'm not safe. I think that's all the words I could, I
1: couldn't even really communicate anything else. This time, they went straight to emergency.
0: Yeah, I remember being in there and she was still breastfeeding at the moment, but but knowing what was going to happen knowing that she was going to go into an antipsychotic so she couldn't breastfeed. And I remember handing Joshua over for the last time and and seeing her breastfeed him and not really knowing what she was doing, but still in some way connecting with him. Um, Yeah, that was shit. It was was really hard.
1: Gabrielle was admitted to the Psychiatric Emergency Care Centre, or Peck Ward,
2: So I ended up going down to the pet ward, which I would then stay for the next 10 days away from my baby.
1: It's well understood that generally the best course of care for new mothers experiencing a psychiatric illness is for them to be treated in a mother and baby unit so they can remain with their child and preserve attachment. But there are very few of these units around.
3: It is a purpose-built mental health unit adhering to all the same regulations as an adult mental health unit. However, it's got an added set of provisions and regulations to make it safe and possible to co-admit the baby with the mum.
1: South Australia only has one publicly funded mother and baby unit, which Dr Hill runs. There are two in WA, six in Victoria, one in Queensland and none in the territories or Tasmania. New South Wales, the most populous state, has none either. Two units are only now just under construction in Sydney, one at Royal Prince Alfred and one at Westmead. Why aren't they more common given, you know, how sensitive that perinatal period can be for psychiatric illness?
3: Look, I mean, I think it's been the story of the difficulties of getting appropriate funding for good sensitive care for mental health. It is expensive, it is sort of labour intensive, you need a a good workforce. I guess these units are thought to be expensive, but I, I don't know how it would stack up, you know, with a cardiac care unit or an ICU that we do see as essential. So I think, you know, part of it is the difficulty of highlighting, you know, the importance of that newborn early years phase in the life cycle.
1: Does that mean there's many more private mother and baby units than in the public system?
3: Actually, no, because the private sector is a difficult sector in which to get appropriate funding for the right type of admission and the right type of care, actually. So so there are a couple in Victoria. There is one in New South Wales and one in Queensland. I'm not aware of any others around the country. There's none here in South Australia.
1: I guess a question a lot of people would have is, you know, can women with postpartum psychosis actually safely care for their babies?
3: Uh, well, it certainly depends on the severity of their symptoms, though by and large, those symptoms are quite severe. Um, so we do, in, uh, in most cases, um, have them with a one-to-one nurse who then is, you know, supporting their mental state, but also ensuring that there's, um, you know, safe, quality care happening for the baby.
1: How often do these cases end in the most tragic of ways where there's, you know, injury or death to the child? Yeah, I don't know that we
3: have good data about the exact incidence of that. Um, And, uh, I mean, I think those are the ones that we see in the newspapers and, unfortunately, those are the cases where uh, it has gone without detection and things have evolved so quickly that there's been some fatal accident for the infant. So I think that's it's very rare, but it's obviously that's the risk, and that's why it's so important for families to bring their loved one, the the mum, to you know emergency services as soon as possible.
1: In a study reviewing admissions and outcomes in her own mother and baby unit in Adelaide, Dr Hill found all twenty five women who were admitted over a five year period to twenty sixteen made enough of a recovery to be able to return home and care for their babies, and almost all made a complete recovery.
3: We used um, medication in every case. We didn't need to use ECT in those particular cases, but sometimes we do. Um, Only a few of them went on lithium um, which, you know, um, is something that can be very effective, but um, usually we don't recommend breastfeeding with it. So it was great that um, most of them were able to get recovery just with medication that is compatible with continuing breastfeeding, which I think is quite an achievement when you consider the severity of this disorder.
1: Gabrielle desperately wishes she could have gotten into a mother and baby unit.
2: I feel. In some ways, the first time around, even though it was such a shocking, out of the blue experience, because I had my baby with me, it felt just that connection and that attachment. I just remember in the peck ward without my baby, that was it was like I was a prisoner. I was isolated. I was alone, and I just didn't feel right. I was a mum. I just had a baby, and I needed to be with my baby. There was nothing else to it.
0: I remember that last night. I, I couldn't sleep. Tried to meditate, um, and I was just yeah, I was having a, a panic attack. I, I just was worried that I was going to to get ill as well, and that people were going to take away David and Joshua, and both Gabs and I were going to be in hospital. Um, that that's kind of I do have a personality normally that, that catastrophizes, but that's that that was really a, a tough night.
1: It's now been five years since Gabrielle's second bout of postpartum psychosis, but some of the pain lingers.
0: One of the the consequences is that I am traumatized by newborn babies. Those first six months to a year, kind of I push away because of the pain that I've been through.
2: I guess for me, it's been really healing in so many ways to share my story. Um, But I guess I want to let other women know that you you can beat this, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to define you as a parent going forward.
1: She's also served on a patient advisory forum for the two mother and baby units that are now being built in Sydney, using her experience to ensure better care for mothers in the future.
2: So it's really, really exciting to see there's going to be eight beds in each, which is obviously still not enough for New South Wales, but it's definitely a good start.
1: Do you know why any of this happened to you? Have the doctors been able to say?
2: No. They had some theories, but essentially they don't know. Um, They think... For whatever reason, especially with myself, because I don't have any history of mental health prior to this, um, and I haven't had anything since, (laughs) so it's definitely obviously distinct to the postpartum period. Um, So I I assume it's hormonal as well as combined with the sleep deprivation. But apart from that, they can't really. Yeah, I haven't been able to have any answers, which is really frustr. You know, (laughs) which I find really frustrating. I've just had to accept that I was just unlucky. You know, kind of just unlucky in that side of things
1: and before any of this happened did you even know that psychosis was you know even a possibility after birth had you heard of postpartum psychosis
2: no, believe it or not, even though I'm a psychologist and obviously I mean obviously I don't work in the postpartum field, I work as a generalist in my practice, but even I didn't know about postpartum psychosis and I work as a, in the mental health field. So how are people who, you know, just the everyday common person meant to know about this? It's just something it's really important people are aware of it and know at least know about it and know the signs to look for.
1: What's family life like for you guys now, you know, several years down the track? How are things now?
0: It's beautiful. Like, it's wonderful. We, we have the, the usual challenges, but we're, we're strong. Gabs is just a beautiful mum. I'm so lucky in that regard. She's so patient and caring and empathetic. Um, but yeah, we've got our lives back and our kids are thriving.
2: I think this experience has made me so much more compassionate, so much more empathic for people. I've literally been there when I'm with my clients. Yes, I can really say I've been there, but actually (laughs) I have been there. And I know what it's like to feel like your mind is broken and your heart's been broken. And I just think I'm a better, not only a better psychologist professionally, but I'm a better mum, I'm a better wife, I'm a better friend. I guess I'm a better human overall.
1: That's Gabrielle McAuliffe and her husband, Andrew McAuliffe. You also heard from perinatal psychiatrist Dr Rebecca Hill and Katie, who also experienced postpartum psychosis. And like Gabrielle, Katie now also uses her experience to help others. She works as a mental health peer support worker. Special thanks to Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, or PANDA, for their help with this episode. That's all in the mind for this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Sana Qadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an
0: ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.